the linearity of language is a huge constraining factor to your point about how much data can you fit on a screen and how long would it take to express that data in a linear linguistic form I'm talking about something radically different right so it does become about tailoring your use cases so uh, I might not want it to read the dashboard to me, but I might want to talk back to the dashboard. And you start to see how design can influence things that uh, designers haven't really seen themselves as having something to say about in a lot of ways uh, in the past. But a lot of it too also has to do with the expectations of the people around us. And uh, I think that designers are kind of waiting for somebody to say, hey, we need design over here. Hey, welcome back to Invisible Machines. Last week, Rob and I spent some time talking about why AI needs UX, specifically why we need experienced designers working hands-on with this powerful technology as it begins to infiltrate our daily lives. Uh, today, we're really excited to bring you a conversation with a titan of experience design, Jesse James Garrett uh, is joining us in the studio. Uh, Jesse is the creator of the Elements of User Design model and eponymous book that kind of gave shape to experience design back in the early days. Jesse was also the co-founder of Adaptive Path, uh, a design consultancy that was acquired by Capital One back in 2014. Uh, we bring this up in the podcast because it was kind of a watershed moment. Uh, up until that time, uh, experience designers really didn't feel like they were being heard and or respected by business leaders. And that acquisition really felt like a turning point uh, for a lot of designers. Uh, Jesse is a sought after speaker. He is an executive leadership coach. He is an author. He is uh, also a podcast host. Uh, he hosts a podcast with fellow Adaptive Path founder, Peter Merholz. We were really excited to have an opportunity to talk with Jesse on our own podcast. So let's go ahead and get to that conversation right now. I think maybe a, a good question to get the ball rolling, Jesse, would be, uh, you know, as an experienced designer, uh, what what excites you or intrigues you most about AI and everything that's kind of going on with AI right now? Oh, man, I wish I had just one answer to that question. There is so much exciting happening in the space. It's almost impossible, really, to keep up with it day by day by day things are evolving um <laughs> it has the technologies that are emerging right now have so much potential for so many different aspects of our lives and especially for our work as technology professionals uh i'm fascinated uh at all of the different uh, dimensions and directions that it's taking yeah yeah that's certainly true how about uh with with generative ai kind of making bigger waves than other mm -hmm. pieces of technology lately. Are you seeing that uh, changing conversations that you're having in the design community? Um, not a whole lot, not yet. I mean, everybody's very curious. Everybody's yeah. very, very curious about the possibilities here. Uh, there are uh, there. I'm I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing a fair amount of conversation about using these technologies to generate inter interfaces to, uh, you know, to replace kind of what I think of as kind of the last step of the user experience process, which is the, you know, getting all the pixels set up in, yeah, in, the, in the right way that a human can interact with it. Um, that stuff seems like there's a lot of potential there because it, it does seem like it naturally leverages 
what we're already seeing with these generative technologies uh, with other kinds of visual art and visual uh, presentation. Uh, when you get outside the realm of the visual, things get a little fuzzier. It's less clear exactly how this stuff is going to play out in the context of design. Uh, a lot of people are very interested in the potential of technologies like ChatGPT for research analysis, uh, things like that. I mean, these are pattern-finding engines, right? Yeah. And so theoretically, yeah. if you've got a big enough ball of data that's got some interesting latent patterns in it, you ought to be able to make use of this technology and uh, get to the bottom of what's going on there. Yeah. Let's head into like where it sort of hit home here on information architecture. Um, hey. So writing an HTML page that can do X, Y, or Z, right? Um, uh -huh. it, that's, that's sort of you know, splashing a bunch of components on a screen, um, grouping them in ways that are only going to work if there are common ways to group those that information or those elements, right? Yes. And, and only if those elements uh, are commonly related to each other in in that generic way, right? So yes. So boring interfaces <laughs> that don't show any imagination, just repeating, you know, what we what we've done before. So let's say very productivity yeah. oriented benefits, but not creativity oriented benefits. Um, so we look looking deeper at generative AI as an, as a tool for information architecture, relating yeah. data to each other. Yeah. Have you explored any ideas around, around that and, and how that might change how we do that? This is so interesting because I, uh, boy, I'm, I'm going to have to take a minute and think back. Uh, I'm going to say that I, I first started giving talks about the potential for IA and AI to intersect uh, around 2007 uh, when I was looking at the potential for algorithms to dynamically reconfigure interfaces in oh, ways that didn't exist yet at the time. Um, and so now seeing us get to the point where some of those things that I was talking about back then that felt like total science fiction are now starting to become reality. But it's such an interesting thing because information architecture is fundamentally about meaning, right? It's about, uh, the meaning that we take from combinations of information elements juxtaposed together and, 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 uh, the ways in which that informs the way that we engage with the content, engage with the functionality, engage with the world. Um, so to your point, uh, these are the, we call them generative because they, they create some kind of an output as a, as a result, but these are really more like synthesis engines. They are master remixers. But a remixer can only work with the materials that are available to them. And uh, to your point, um, <sighs> any new kind of information architecture bot that I might imagine that is going to draw from the existing architectures on the web to generate new ones, it's going to be limited by what it's been exposed to. And it's not ever going to generate uh, the kind of leaps forward that have been the things that have really driven the industry. Uh, I don't think generative AI gets you from the command line in 1980 to the GUI in 1984. You know, 
I don't think that generative AI gets you from the BlackBerry to the iPhone. It's it. There are these bigger leaps that are uh, that are required in making these big creative breakthroughs that generative AI is not going to be able to support. So what that means is that the stuff that is baseline, the stuff that is simplest and easiest to execute because there are a lot of examples to draw on. If you are working in a space where there are a lot of familiar examples, generative AI is really going to serve you. And if you're working in a space where the solutions are pretty well baked, there's not a lot of complexity and nuance there, and you just want to pull together the best of what everybody else has done, generative AI is going to be great for that too. Yeah. Um, have you, have you explored graph DBs much? Um, um, uh, yeah, some, some, not, not, uh, not a ton, I would say. Okay. Um, I'm, a. I, I feel like it's one of those technologies that you, you sort of orbit around and then, and then when you dive in, you sort of, I mean, for me, I, I just sort of couldn't stop this so exciting. And, and the, and the best way that I could describe what happened to me was realizing that in a design format, you're, you're spending, you are the, you're the mechanism for relating data in the UI, right? Uh, how two pieces of data from two separate systems relate to each other, um, is expressed in the design of the user interface. Uh, right. And, and literally the geoplacement of them in reference uh -huh. to each other, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we have this concept of moving that to the back end. This idea mm -hmm. of, of data relationships being present on the back end, um, it doesn't change that whole uh, you know, design component of deciding what things should be grouped together and how they should relate to each other and how they should relate to each other and how you would want to express that. Uh, it just moves it and and puts it in a in a different format. So now you have this layer, I would say a layer above your data that Is talks it? about how your data, you know, or, or expresses how your data relates to each other, like how one record relates to another data point, another data point. And then you throw in unstructured data into that. And right. now you have this dynamic component. Um, and... Uh, where I'm kind of going with it is that generative AI is like this, this, this interface for uh, making a conversational interaction in in a sequential sort of way, and and the relationships are now expressed through words versus geography. Yes. Um, but that whole tufty world of like, how do you get a lot of data into a small footprint? That, mm -hmm. that's not good for conversation, right? That's no. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not it, that whole, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you remember, but he, you know, he hated the monitor cause it wasn't high enough resolution, right? He wanted, <laughs> he right. wanted more, yeah. more pixels yeah. so he could get more data into a smaller footprint. And that was like the goal, right. get as much data into a smaller. So you have this, this world where there are certain things that are expressed well through conversation. And then there are certain things that 
that aren't particularly problems that are around information architecture and trying to get a lot mm -hmm. of data into a small amount of space. Um, and we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to thread those together, like weave them where, where you have those lingual and extralingual components mm -hmm. working together. Um, mm -hmm. And then thinking about generative AI to, you know, AI to kind of create those. Um, why do I, so it feels like, bottom line, feels like there's a place for traditional design in the context of conversation design when you add these extralingual components into it. But it still feels like the design community is is in the in the stands. They're not in the arena. They're they're still watching. Um, unable yeah. to engage. Do you have a, a sense of what it will take to kind of bring them into the conversation? Well, so I um, I started out as a writer. I still am a writer, but I started out professionally as a writer before moving into design. So this kind of moving back and forth between uh, visual expression and linguistic expression is kind of the bridge that I've been crossing back and forth my whole career. And... Uh, what I have found uh, in my experience of working with writers and working with designers is that the linearity of language is a huge constraining factor to your point about how much data can you fit on a screen and how long would it take to express that data in a linear linguistic form? I'm talking about something radically different, right? So it does become about tailoring your use cases. So. Uh, I might not want it to read the dashboard to me, but I might want to talk back to the dashboard, right? So there's a conversational thread in the overall experience, which means looking at the experience holistically and not thinking of your job as delivering a visual interface, but delivering an experience and then deciding what's the right modality at the different moments in that experience. Yeah, that makes sense. I, 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 it's this idea that uh, designers define themselves, you know, through color and shapes. Um, Many of them do. Many of them do because their their attraction to the visual was what brought them into the field in the first place. That wasn't my path, and so I don't have that same orientation. There are many, many other designers just like me, right? Who do not have a primarily visual orientation. What I will say though is that. Um, along the lines of what I was talking about a minute ago about the, the linearity of language, designers get very comfortable with, even if you're not a primarily visual person, designers get very comfortable with working in more sort of non-linear cognitive contexts and cognitive styles. They're used to kind of piecing things together kind of in this pointillist kind of fashion. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a leadership coach. I work with leaders of design teams. I work with them on their challenges working with their partners inside these organizations, many of them talk about the challenges that they have of taking the way that they think about ideas, which is holistic and multifaceted, and there are many entry points and many paths through an idea, and turning that into something that their business stakeholders and their product and engineering partners can understand, because those people don't think that way. They want something that's more sort of linearized. So I think there's also something about the cognitive style of design that gets in the way of designers engaging in the way that you're talking about and keeps them in the stance. Cool. I, I, you know, having been in this, you know, both design and technology space for as long as I have, I, you, know, you, you were one of those 
pioneers in the UX world in terms of galvanizing people towards UX. Um, mm. You know, uh, uh, whether you want to call it ins- inspirational or whether you want to say that it was on purpose, you know, as you were trying <laughs> to, you had a cause. Um, yeah. Or just a passion, right? Or all of the above. Um, do you see yourself playing a role in, you know, kind of saying, hey, there's a new wave now, you know, as Bill Gates, I think, said, you know, this is the biggest, the biggest uh, UI uh, innovation since since the interface. Do you see yourself like, do, do you have the life in you to do it again? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, that I feel like that's a little bit like saying, you know, uh, do you, uh, there's a big wave coming. Do you want to get on your surfboard or not? Right. And, uh, or do you just want to let the wave wash over you and, and keep treading water where you are? Uh, I'm eager to get on the surfboard. I, uh, am, I'm eager to see designers get on that surfboard. I think there are a lot of opportunities for, if you separate UX and UI again, there's a, there's an opportunity for a richer conversation there. There's an opportunity for us to, to bring a lot of the expertise that we've developed, especially over the last 25 years, around abstracting away from the specifics of interface to the broader challenges of, of experience, um, looking at more holistic, multimodal experiences. Um, we've got a lot of tools. We've got all the tools of service design to support us and journey mapping and things like that to uh, to to frame, reframe, and recontextualize these uh, these challenges in ways that the technologists who are doing this stuff right now, they don't have those tools and they don't have that knowledge, they don't have that frame, so they need us. Yeah, I was act- I'm so glad you brought up service design because I think that, um, it, it's it's always there in the peripherals. Uh, it, it's never really you know hit main the main stage in design, um, at least from my perspective. Uh, but so critical and and service design does it oftentimes lend itself to that linear mm-hmm. concept um and i'm i'm excited to kind of see how that that world that you know maybe has been somewhat siloed in the design world uh now maybe can take center stage as this you know more linear style interface with these graphical elements mixed into it uh is it? Take hold. Is it? Um, yeah. I, I don't know how much uh, you've spent time around service design formally. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, so it seems like um, you know, trying to think of how it weaves into conversation design is conversation design the design of language, like like a writer, or is mm-hmm. it really service design that needs mm-hmm. a skin, which is a writer? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you that that you frame it this way because um, during my time at Capital One, uh, where I was a part of the uh, the design team for a few years after they acquired my company, Adaptive Path, um, one of the areas that I spent a lot of time digging into was actually this intersection between service design, conversation design, and AI, all of it. Um, and they were at the time, this was a few years ago now, they were doing some very interesting experiments with figuring out how you build that layer cake 
right? Rough, rough. Because it, it's like we look at each of the pieces and we go, this is not this is not a whole meal here. It's not a whole dish, right? Right. Uh, but then we start to see how you can you can take the technology and then you stack, uh, you know, the IA on top of that. And then you stack uh, service design on top of that, and you start to get this this larger and larger context, and you start to see how design can influence things that uh, designers haven't really seen themselves as having something to say about in a lot of ways uh, in the past. But a lot of it, too, also has to do with the expectations of the people around us. And uh, I think that designers are kind of waiting for somebody to say, hey, we need design over here. Yes. Um, <laughs> because... Nobody, nobody is, is, uh, nobody knows exactly how to enter that conversation without an invitation. And the people who are driving that conversation don't see the role that design can potentially play in it. Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, I would say like, we need the adaptive path now for, for conversation design. It's like, if, you know, for, as it matured and, and, and so forth, adaptive path, you know, changed and, and, and matured itself. But, yeah. But it's almost like time for that business model again. Um, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Because it was so, <laughs> so, uh, so focused on enablement of organizations versus, you know, black box, we'll do it for you. Um, yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah. Thank you. And in this well, world. I can remember too, uh, uh, when I was at UX Magazine, when Adaptive Path uh, merged with Capital One, that felt like a watershed moment because it felt like up until then there was a lot of banging on the table, like to be taken seriously. And I think for a lot of people, that was the moment where it was like, okay, now they're listening. Um, um, and it, it seems like too, there's a similar trajectory with, with AI as there was with UX, wherein like everyone kind of knows they need it, but they don't necessarily know what it means or what it entails because mm -hmm. it means so many different things. And so, right. you know, then of the few people who kind of got the full picture of UX, there were a subset of those people that were actually willing to take the plunge. So it, it feels like we're in kind of a similar uh, cycle here. I think that's true. I think that the, um, I do think that the potential benefits of AI are, are more readily apparent to a broader audience mm -hmm. than UX ever enjoyed. Right, um, right. You know, very true. Uh, UX was never the subject of consecutive op-eds in the New York Times over the span of a few weeks, right? We never got to that place. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the one of the misconceptions that Rob and I talk about a lot when we were working on our book was kind of that idea that a conversational experience is just limited to talking to a machine. Um, and as we've been talking about, like it does include all these other channels and modalities. Um, and it seems like with experience design too, there, there might be a bit of a hang up on the visual element of it, but there's really like so many different disciplines that go into design that fit right into the needs that we're seeing right now with, with the maturation of, of AI. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, I mean, so what we've seen over the course of the last several years with digital product design is that it's been the emergence of this, uh, hybrid monstrosity that we call UX slash UI, uh, which is uh, a role that I tend to think of as uh, UX is the bait and UI is the switch, um, where uh, I think that a lot of organizations found that if they branded 
a, essentially an interface design, an interface builder role as a UX role, they could attack, attract more, uh, more talented people and they could attract people with a, with a broader skill set and, uh, and, you know, more flexible ways of thinking about those things and then putting those people into a role where they get to use none of those skills. So that's the, that's the situation that we've been in for the last few years. This I think represents a break point for that because the UX considerations are going to start to peel away from the UI considerations as this stuff comes into the mix more and more. These, these, this larger context that you're talking about is going to become relevant in new ways for these organizations that a room full of Figma jockeys is not going to prepare you to take on. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, w one way I think about it is the conversation is, um, information architecture on the fly. Yeah. And micro UIs, um, are pieces and components that, uh, now get dynamically drawn in to craft mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. potentially graph DBs are the stored relationships of these elements, these data elements mm -hmm. that allow you to, uh, reorganize them on the fly. Um, Boy. and, mm -hmm. and so we have this, what I would say more complex, um, just on the, on the sure fact that it's, it's dynamic. D dynamic mm -hmm. UIs have always been possible, but no one, no one ever got their own custom designed UI every time they logged in. It was always very right. cookie cutter, um, right? And, right. But now we we really have the opportunity to to make that come to life. Um, mm -hmm. But it's it's far more complicated to to think through. Um, and uh, yeah, and maybe maybe that's it. It's it's what you said that that you got to break up these different disciplines within design and say, there are folks like you that are, uh, that are looking at a much broader level. They're looking at language, linguistics, okay. extra linguistics, uh, art information, architecture and systems. Um, yeah. Systems yeah. design and wrapping yeah. that together into uh, a design process. I think that there are some interesting considerations here as, as we move toward kind of structuring meaning on the back end, because um, I'm reminded of some of the things that I've 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 seen on social media, some of the commentary about AI from you know I've seen a couple of folks who've said I'm about to graduate with a PhD. Uh, I've been studying uh, natural language processing for the past seven years. <laughs> uh, and as far as I can tell, in six months, everything I've been doing is going to be obsolete. Right. Um, and the big question is, so we've been approaching a lot of these problems as these uh, architectural problems. Top down, get the structure right, and that'll provide you with the foundation for what you want to achieve kinds of approaches. Um, those approaches are now have been lapped or are very close to being lapped by simply brute force, large scale pattern matching uh -huh. and brute force, large scale pattern matching seems to be able to do 
most of what we were able to do with all of that heavy list lifting architectural work um, and might, especially if we're able to turn it on itself to improve itself, uh, be able to go many orders of magnitude higher in capability than those bespoke human crafted architectures that we're talking about. So I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff uh, that's going to play out there in the next several years. Yeah, we have this kind of notion that um, that the best thing that people can do is to get involved with working with AI and figure out ways to really leverage their own creativity, having kind of mm -hmm. now been freed from some of the, the tedium that normally, you know, goes into work. Uh, I wonder how broadly that applies, because there, there's, there are so many layers to, to getting AI working right or working in a responsible way. Um, I, I wonder... Like how, if you're coming into the working world, like how, how are you going to even going to be thinking about what your role is or what it might be? Because it, it right. seems like the, the edges are just starting to fall apart a bit. Is it? Is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we, it's, it is, everybody can see that there is a lot of disruption potential here. Nobody can tell exactly where that potential is going to, or is going to play out and when, um, <clears throat> It is interesting that um, we thought it was going to be the truck drivers who were going to lose their jobs to AI first, and the warehouse workers. And <laughs> it turns out that those kinds of those kinds of jobs are really quite safe right now. Yeah, yeah um, they're harder and, harder than than they thought to replace. Yep. But if your job is to uh, sit at a desk and manipulate information, you definitely need to be thinking about hey, how AI is going to change that job. Now, I don't think that goes away. I don't think the human element goes away. I don't think, I, I think there are, there will be the, the deep systems that, that do the hardcore data stuff and we'll have the existing visual systems that we use to interact with those in, in varying ways, in varying contexts. Uh, and then, yeah, I think there will be a conversational layer that goes along with it, that everything is going to talk to you and everything is going to be able to interact in some kind of a verbal fashion. Um, the, I think that where it gets interesting is, uh, when we talk about generative AI, um, I think the frame that a lot of people have right now is that this is a one-step, one-shot, one-stop solution that allows you to skip an entire creative process uh -huh. to go from a description of the idea to a realization of the idea in exactly that much time. As if reciting the recipe for a cake produced a cake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, or even not reciting the recipe for the cake, just describing the cake. Right. Produce the cake. Right. Um, yeah, it's that GPT can't tell you what time it is. I mean, it, something so right. basic, it doesn't know the time. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it. It. It doesn't. It, it doesn't know. Like the first truth. It doesn't digital know clock. You know, like yeah. how how simple was that? And it can't even do that, right? <laughs> it can tell you yeah. what time it is without you telling it with some sort of context what time it is. Um, yeah. One thing I wanna I, I wanna hit you up on is when 
when the UX space was sort of amusing, uh, emerging, mm. you know, user experience and design first, and it was very noble, right? Um, I don't think that most people saw were scared of it. You know, there, there, you didn't have this element. It was just, yeah. it was just very pro user. Don't leave people behind. Um, try to make technology accessible to everyone. Stop frustrating people. Uh, it, it, it just, it, it, I felt like it was a very, very, uh, noble place, but more importantly, not just for myself. Um, but f that, that the others around me also, um, saw it as lo noble, whether they were in it or not. Right. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, fighting for the end user, uh, rallying for their, you know, for their, on, on behalf of their frustration, right. Uh, being a voice mm -hmm. for them, the customer yeah. and the user. Now I find myself in that same scenario, seeing a huge leap for the, mm -hmm. for the users that I never could reach, that just didn't want to use interfaces, you know? Um, and now I see, oh, wow, I, like I, a breakthrough. So I've been on this cause, but all of a sudden now I find myself um, having not changed all of my motivations or my excitement, but seeing that my excitement to enable the user, other people perceive as pro AI and, and that I'm going to destroy the world, like that I'm pro destroying the world. And, yeah. and, and that, that same enthusiasm for making technology more accessible to everybody. Uh, I, I have these, these, I don't know what you want to call them haters or whatever that are like, AI is going to kill us all, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're promoting yeah. it. Yeah, um, which is Disney. interesting. I don't know if, 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 if that's emerging in your, in your corner of the world. You know, I, I uh, as as you mentioned, you know, design isn't really engaging here yet, and um, nothing has come up that looks like it is a significant risk to. Uh, designers' livelihoods yet. Um, you know, if you are uh, someone trying to make your way by selling stock illustrations, you are facing something very different. Um, there, and that's not to say that that's not right around the corner <laughs> for digital product design. It, it certainly is a very real possibility. Um, it is, you know, how we got here is just so uh, kind of weird and kind of messed up and uh, not something we can take back. You know, it's um, should these models have been trained in the way ways that they were? Probably not. Uh, is there a way to put that genie back in the bottle? I don't think so. Um, I understand that there are a lot of people who are very upset about the ways in which their, um, their artistic style, which they consider to be their livelihood has now been, um, imitated by a robot. Um, that said, I do think that if you choose to see generative AI not as a shortcut around a creative process but as an element 
of a creative process, then there is an opportunity there to um, expand our potential creatively. Not to have the robot do the job for us, but how do we have the robot be a genuine creative partner for us um, as a, a, a um, as a sounding board, as a uh, as a source of good ideas, bad ideas, all kinds of ideas, um, things that are going to enrich the work of the designer rather than uh, taking that work away. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the threats and maybe why some of the design communities stand off is you've got folks that are, you know, artists that are picketing AI, generative AI, and so it's it's the enemy um, versus the friend. And right. in, in a in an you know in an industry that needs those creative minds, um, you know, it's it's it's, it's I guess it's going to be a, a I, I didn't see that coming. That's that's what I could say. Yeah. I, I did not yeah. at all yeah, yeah. see that coming. Um I thought that the you know, that the UX community would just be embracing this uh by now, um and, and definitely not picketing against it. <laughs> that's something I saw. <laughs> um Yeah. But I understand it. It's not that I don't understand the fear and, and its change and you know, all of those things. Uh but yeah, it's uh it's it's definitely a new world um, for UX, and it's it's interesting, uh, as you put it, it's, it hasn't hit that world yet, um, it, it, which is fascinating it, it, that it's it's hitting the other jobs, um, and I don't mean yeah. in taking it away. I mean in embracing it, using it. As you said, it's it's it, it can't re- it can't tell time. <laughs> like, right. Right. Therefore, it can't deliver something on time. It can't design something. It <laughs> <Right>. can't. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what it takes to to kind of galvanize this community. Maybe, maybe you'll do another adaptive path, and that's <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> uh, like for me too. I've, I've been a writer for like twenty five years, and I think at first seeing chat GPT crank out decent quality writing at such a rapid clip was a little disconcerting, but then you realize how poor the quality is like really on a deep level. And then you start to think about like, well, there's ways where I could use this to my advantage, right? Like at first it kind of feels a bit like Wikipedia. Like maybe I'll ask it for a summary full well knowing I'll need to double check every piece of information I use. Exactly. (laughs) But then there's a chance for like me to maybe build my own, large language model and feed it my entire, all the writing I have. I've saved clips from old newspaper articles. I can scan those in. Like I could yeah. build this uh, intern that could uh, help me, you know, summarize things that I could then synthesize into something where I'm actually doing all the writing. I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, that that feels like the divide is like you have to either, or it feels like you kind of have to embrace it at this point. It, it, you can't run from it. It's, it's you can't, kind of you inevitable can't, you at can't, this point. Yeah, you can't run from it. You can't ignore it. I agree. Everybody just has to figure out what their relationship to it is um, and where it's relevant for them. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like a fraught moment, too, because everything is moving so, so quickly, and the window for getting it right, like just getting that first step right so that our trajectory is at least somewhat tenable, is like, mm-hmm. I just feel like that window is, you can see it closing. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have a sense that it might have already closed. Ah, drat. <laughs> our trajectory is 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 well underway. I mean, when Microsoft doubled down on their investment in OpenAI, I think that pretty much closed the door. They're like, yep, this is real, we're going. And then everybody followed suit. Yeah, and I, so, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, um, Stanford, some folks at Stanford claim they've... Um, Oh yeah, the clone. Yeah, yeah, six hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and you got your mm-hmm. own. Yeah. So that's the other thing that's going to happen is that uh, you know, uh, for every um, <clears throat> old school, um, I'm I'm trying to think of an old school Unix distribution. I can't even think <laughs> of any uh, anymore. Uh, you know. Irix or something like that, something that you had to go to a big company and spend a ton of money on to get to even be able to gain access to that technology. You know, there were a whole bunch of companies whose business model was built entirely around selling their proprietary Unix systems on their Unix hardware. And then Linux came along and none of those companies exist anymore. None of those companies are doing that anymore. Uh Uh, because it was eclipsed by community effort and open source. And I think that this, I, it would be very surprised to see something different happen here. Yeah. Well, and it feels like we're moving maybe even as a society from more product design towards service design. Um, yeah, I I don't know if that's entirely true, but it seems like people are, or at least young people, uh, seem more concerned with quality experiences than, or having experiences than they do with. Uh, maybe like acquiring objects. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think that uh, the ecological situation on the planet today is something that you, you can't grow up in this environment and not be aware of. And I think that is mm-hmm. influencing, you know, social standards and mores yeah. for younger people. Yeah. I, um, so I can't, uh, I, you know, I've, I've sort of noticed in this space that, well, I'll tell you, we did a, um, we, we recently did a user test on, you know, scheduling an appointment using conversational AI over the phone. Mm-hmm. And we, we did a comparison of a, one of our top competitors. So they have uh, an example of, of their best attempt at, at this, which is more of a portrayal of the technology, right? Um, and then we tend to be more design focused, um, mm-hmm. just you know, based on my background. Uh, and uh, when asking businesses, um, you know, which uh, experience they preferred, so the one we had created where we gave a lot of thought and fine tuning to getting just the right experience, and another one which had, you know, some of the technology, but not that fine tuning or care. It's like the old days of the internet with those ugly websites, right? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because the business leaders were like, oh, those are basically the same experience. They didn't, Is it? You know, as far as they were concerned, they couldn't tell the difference. But we user tested it uh, with a fair number of users, got NPS scores, and, um, and it just literally looked at containment rates, right? Um, how, how many actually got the appointment they wanted? Um, and the difference was, interestingly enough, 80% containment rate on, on, on one, 100% on the one that we had designed, which is kind of <laughs> crazy. Um, 
and that was using GPT uh, yes, yes. Uh, against traditional uh, IVR type um, voices. Yeah. Um, but more interesting was the MPS score for the the experience that was worse was like four forty, um, which is which is just below the average MPS score for like a call center, which is like five or fifty. <laughs> So uh -huh. talking to a human, the ones we were getting were 80. So, wow. So we had this idea, this, this, what you would say 20% difference in containment rates and, and the world would, th that most businesses would look at that and say, wow, that's great. 80% container rate. They didn't even measure the MPS score. Now like, oh, great. They got their appointment, but they weren't happy. Right. Right. They weren't right. satisfied. Um, and that businesses would see them as 20% different instead of literally the difference between being worse than your call center and being substantially better than your call center, right? Right, right. Um, and it just seems like, again, we don't care about user experience. Like, it's like we're reliving this mistake again. <laughs> and, and, and I don't understand it. Like, why? how did we not learn? Didn't we do this already? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, I, I am sorry to report that, uh, the struggle goes on. <laughs> uh, the, um, the fact is that the, that the, the field, the, uh, the technological environment, the world of digital product has grown much more quickly than UX has been able to keep up with. Uh, if you think about the amount of software that is being written right now today in the world as a you know as a mass if you could visualize it as a physical mass it is exponentially larger than the amount of software that was made 10 years ago at the same time which is even larger than those than the amount of software that was being made 20 years ago like it's so huge uh every company if you're at any kind of scale at all, you have to also be a software company in some way, which means that there are many, many more designers doing design work than have ever been exposed to user experience as a concept or had any training in any of this kind of stuff. And so this, yeah, our heights are higher than ever in terms of what we've been able to accomplish and what we and the value that user experience continues to deliver. Uh, but that long tail of less knowledgeable, less experienced, less value being delivered. It's longer and longer all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because companies, uh, they're in this weird position now where they, they kind of have to, every company now has to become a technology company. Mm -hmm. um, and that has to be their primary mode of existence in some ways, like whatever their product or service is, is, is sort of secondary. Um, and a, a lot of the processes that that we describe in the book essentially turn companies into software companies, right? Like they're, mm -hmm. they're in charge of their own development cycle. Right. Um, so yeah, they're about to just get washed in technology. And yeah. So few of them seem aware and or prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well I want to, uh, as we wrap up, I want to stump you with a really tough question. I want to look forward. Okay. Okay. Into this world that, as you said, nobody knows what's coming. Yeah. But let's give it a shot. <laughs> let's let's try here. So 
One thing that's uh, that's always intrigued me for the last four years, like just on my mind, and um, what what we've been playing a lot with is this concept of ephemeral apps. Um, so yeah. it's this idea that GPT or some generative uh, interface is creating a micro UI um, or an you know an app essentially on the fly. So we have mm-hmm. code being written, generated, deployed used by a person and then never used again. So this Is fully it? dynamic app creation as part of a conversation on the fly as a moment in time. Um, I guess like uh, like something we've never seen. It's this, there was no dev cycle. There was no design phase. There was no, it's, it's, it's more agile than agile, <laughs> right? Like agile's yeah. not agile enough for this. Any ideas where the design discipline fits into a world where apps are are literally constructed and deconstructed on the fly? Well, again, I think that um, I think that you have to separate design from the delivery of visual experiences. Um, and you know, the way that I think about it is. Um, The quality of your results are only going to be uh, is only going to be as good as the quality of your prompting, and so I think prompt craft is the new UX design. Uh, someone is always going to have to talk to the machine. Someone is always going to have to be able to describe what they want in a way that the machine can understand and give them something accurate. Uh, I vague uh you know vague prompts give you back vague results and so when you talk about being able to dynamically generate an app on the fly writing code and generating a ui and creating something customized it all depends on how effectively the user can express their intentions and express their needs if i can't tell you exactly what you want what i want you can't make it for me right so uh so this is where i get interested in the human interpretive layer, uh, the bot whisperer, the person who can have a conversation with you about what you're looking for and then turn around and translate that into something that the machine can actually understand. So you don't have to develop that skill in talking to the machine. So I think that these kind of these human tenders of these algorithmic systems are going to be the new user experience designs. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think also, uh, I think as you were hinting towards, it's this, you know, in earlier conversation, um, it's not going to create the exceptional experience. It's going to create right. the generic experience. And the exceptional experience will still be the job of, you know, as as we call it, co-botting, right? Or co-creation with mm-hmm. the machine. Uh, mm-hmm. For, for those where the experience doesn't matter as much and generic is okay, yeah, you know, we'll see that, but we're not going to yeah. see exception, exceptional examples of, of great information architecture come out of an ephemeral. Uh, yeah, uh, well, this is, and, and this is funny because uh, this is really the irony. In over all of these years of all of this science fiction, 
uh, artificial intelligence has been associated with kind of uh, the upper echelons of technology and society. Uh, AIs, you know, in fiction tend to be associated with the rich and the powerful and, and, um, and those kinds of things. Um, and the way that it's actually going to play out is that, uh, AI is going to find it's the most impact in those areas where, um, people don't want to spend a lot of money, where people want to be cheap. Uh, AI is going to be associated with, um, Band flyers, uh, neighborhood newsletters, um, you know, uh, billboard advertising, any of this kind of, this kind of stuff that's all part of the texture of our landscape that people need to get done, but don't necessarily want to hire a designer to do. Mm -hmm. Those things are all going to be, uh, done with AI. So instead of being, I think the, the, the province of the, of the rich and powerful AI is going to be a powerful democratizing technology. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Like people who have ideas, but don't necessarily have traditional agency to execute them. Now they don't have, have the skills. They don't have the time. They don't have the money. Yeah. 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 If, if you were kind of coming to experience design now, uh, do you have any sense of like, what you might be drawn to, or, um, I guess it's in a way asking for advice for a young experience designer, like what, what, what areas do you think need the most immediate attention? Well, I mean, I think the conversational aspect of conversational AI is where the designer really potentially has a lot to offer. Every design is a conversation. It may not be something that we frame linguistically, but we are always talking about dialogue, the back and forth between the user and the system. It's Absolutely. always been what we've done. So you, you just take that out of the visual context and, and think about how to expand that idea more broadly. And that'll, that'll give you a sense of the toolkit that you need. It's more about um, human context and human psychology and especially understanding the moment-to-moment -moment psychology of an experience. Um, as when I was working with the, uh, when I was working with the AI chatbot team at Capital One, there was a, there was a lot of concern given to uh, <clears throat> making sure that, uh, that the system retained enough context for the conversation that the tone didn't just sort of suddenly switch to something that was completely inappropriate to what we were just now talking about. And maintaining that kind of consistency to the character, the voice of uh, of the bot was very important. So, uh, so I think that these kinds of things of understanding how to create contextual consistency that makes it really feel like a human interaction is where uh, a conversational AI designer has potentially a lot to contribute. That is not going to be uh, something that is going to see a technological solution anytime soon. Yeah. Definitely. Well, great. Right. Well, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to talk over each other for a second. Uh, yeah, Jesse, we, uh, really appreciate you taking the yeah. time. I, I want to point out that adaptive path. If you, uh, uh, if it, it, those words foreshadowed this moment, 
Uh, <laughs> in design, you know, they're very early. We we now we now truly have the technology to create adaptive pads for each user. Um, That's true. And uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, the words that you know, pretty pretty poignant at this moment. <laughs> it's taken on a whole new dimension. <laughs> yeah, I guess it has. I guess it has. Well, it's great having you on. Thank you so much. I uh, enjoyed being here. Thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. We are produced in partnership with UX Magazine, and you can subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes. You can also find us at the Invisible Machines YouTube channel if you'd like to watch episodes. Uh, you can pick up a copy of the book Rob and I wrote, Age of Invisible Machines, wherever you get your books. Many thanks to the marketing team at OneReach.ai and the team at UXMag for all their support. Shout out to our video editor, Michael Litvinov, and we look forward to connecting with you next week. 